Welcome to this presentation of First Baptist Church Loeb. We're glad to have you joining us today. Our mission at FBC Loeb is to bring glory to God by being disciple makers. For that purpose, we present the following resource that it may be a blessing. All right, grab a Bible and turn to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24, and in case you use one of our pew Bibles, you'll find that on page 885. I'm glad to be preaching again this morning after being off last week. I appreciated Jason filling in for me. And as we approach the end of our study through Luke this morning, Jesus is going to put his death and resurrection in biblical perspective as he reveals himself to a couple of his disciples. And so we're in Luke chapter 24, and we are going to pick up beginning in verse 13. It says, That very day two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you were holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and beside all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some of the women in our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back, saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it as the women had said, but him they did not see. And so a couple of weeks ago, we read the first part of Luke's account of the resurrection. We saw that on the Sunday morning after Jesus' death, uh, when the women disciples came to the tomb to finish preparing Jesus' body for, for permanent burial, they found the tomb empty. And, and a couple of angels announced to them that Jesus had risen, just as he had said he would. And so the women went and told the rest of the disciples about this amazing thing that they had just seen. But all of the others uh, rejected their story as complete nonsense, and they refused to believe them. But we also saw that Peter couldn't resist going to see for himself. And so he ran to the tomb. And when he got there, he saw the linen cloths that had been used to wrap Jesus' body, but nothing else. And so he went home marveling at what had happened, trying to make sense of it all. And now as we pick up again here in verse 13, we fast forward to later on in the day when two of, of the disciples from the larger group of Jesus' followers are walking from Jerusalem to a town called Emmaus. Now, we don't know the exact location of where Emmaus was. It no longer exists today. Nor do we know why these disciples are walking there. But as they go, they are having a lively discussion. Luke's wording almost suggests a debate 
among themselves about everything that has happened. And I'm sure that, that most all of us can relate to this on some level. Anytime a major event happens in our lives, whether it's good or bad, as we get together with friends and family, we, we repeat what happened over and over again and, and replay it. So you might say, I knew as soon as he threw the ball that it was going to be a touchdown. Or, or you may say, I have no idea why she did that. What was she thinking? Right? Rehashing events is part of processing them, and that's what these disciples are doing. So these disciples are trying to make sense of everything that has happened with Jesus. And in verse 15, we see that at some point, Jesus appears and begins to walk along with them. Although Luke tells us that their eyes were kept from recognizing him, and we'll talk about why that might be here in a moment. But we've talked before about how dangerous travel could be in the ancient world, uh, and so it would not be uncommon for people, even strangers, to group up and, and walk together for safety purposes. And so Jesus is walking with the disciples, and, and after overhearing their conversation for a certain period of time, he cuts in, and, and he asks, what's all this stuff that you guys are talking about? Now, when the disciples hear this question, they stop walking, and, and they look at Jesus, obviously saddened, but also in shock. And one of them, whose name is Cleopas, answers Jesus, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? Like, do you live under a rock or something? I mean, you can, can you imagine someone walking up to you on, on September 13th in 2001 and asking, hey, uh, did something happen somewhere with some planes and some tall buildings? You would say, uh, yeah, something happened. Where have you been? Right? Television, radio, newspapers, internet, it's been everywhere. How could you possibly miss that? And the same kind of reaction is, is happening here. Jesus had captured the attention of the entire Jewish people, and his death is the only thing that anybody is talking about. But of course, Jesus has a purpose here, and so he pushes further, and he says, what things? And so the disciples go on to explain about this guy named Jesus, who was a mighty prophet, both in what he said and what he did, and how the religious leaders had rejected him and turned him over to be crucified, yada, yada, yada. And then in verse 21, they say, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. We had hoped that he was the Messiah who was going to fulfill God's promises to redeem his people. You see, from centuries past, God had promised to send a redeemer for his people. And for a long time, it had seemed like Jesus was the one. All, right, all the way back in chapter 1, after the birth of John the Baptist, whose job was to prepare the way for Jesus, we saw that Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit, and he declared that God was now in the process of redeeming his people. And then in chapter 2, when Anna saw the, the baby Jesus in the temple, she, she began to go around talking about him to everyone who was waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. The things that Jesus said and did all seemed to line up, and these disciples had thought that he was the one. He was going to be the one to redeem God's people. But then he was killed, and all of their hopes came crashing down. But then again, in the second half of verse 21, they go on to talk about how the women had come in just that morning, excited because they had gone and found the tomb to be empty. 
And they had seen some angels who had told them that Jesus was alive. And how some of the other disciples had gone to the tomb themselves and found it just how the women had said it was, but without seeing Jesus. And so the tomb is empty. That much is indisputable. But Jesus has still not been seen dead or alive. And so the disciples still aren't sure of exactly what to make of the situation. It's, it's this strange place of limbo where, where they're too intrigued by what has happened to lose hope completely, but they're also too realistic to allow their hopes to get up too high. So these disciples have explained what happened to Jesus to Jesus. But now he's going to do some explaining, which we'll see as we pick up again, beginning in verse 25. It says, and he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And so as we pick up again in verse 25, Jesus has heard enough. And he goes in on these wavering disciples and exclaims, Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. I imagine that probably got their attention. Then he goes on to say, Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Essentially, Jesus is answering their astonishment to him with a little astonishment of his own. He's saying, you're asking where I've been. The question is, where have you been? Why is this so difficult for you to believe? Don't you realize that the scriptures indicate that the Messiah would suffer and then enter into glory? Now, mind you, the disciples still don't understand that this is Jesus. But this stranger on the road has a very different understanding of what has happened over this last weekend. You see, these disciples thought that Jesus' death prevented him from being the Messiah who would redeem his people. But in reality, Jesus' death was the very way God intended for the Messiah to redeem his people. His death in our place. His righteousness in exchange for our wickedness. The, The powers of sin and death defeated. Eternal life made available. Future restoration promised for all who will trust in him. And this is not a novel idea. In verse 27, Luke tells us that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now, Moses refers to the first five books of the Bible that Moses wrote. So that would be Genesis through Deuteronomy. And the prophets can refer specifically to the prophetic books of the Old Testament, but it can also be used more generically to refer to the rest of the Old Testament as a whole. But we see here that Jesus walks through all of the scriptures, the entire Old Testament, showing how he pointed to what the Messiah would be and do. Now, Luke doesn't give us specific details of what Jesus says, so it's a valid question to to wonder what he's referring to. Obviously, there are, are all kinds of direct prophecies in the Old Testament that Jesus fulfills, like Micah's prediction that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, or, or Isaiah's promise that he would be a descendant of David. But there are also all kinds of what we call types of Christ in the Old Testament. There are, are people and events and institutions that serve as a pattern 
of, of what Jesus will, will do. And so the offices of, of prophet, priest, and king, right, the exodus event, uh, the temple, the sacrificial system, and more, all these things foreshadow Jesus and provide a framework for understanding what he would do as the Messiah. And beyond that, as we've seen even just here in Luke, there are hundreds of scriptures that find their ultimate realization in the life and ministry of Jesus. Right, how many times over the last year have we stopped to look at the way that Luke uses the Old Testament to explain what Jesus is doing and who he is? We've talked before about the timing of, of Israel's feast days like Passover and the, the day of first fruits and how God instituted those things so that they would communicate the significance of what Jesus would do. Right, all of the Old Testament laws point to our need for a Savior because of our sin. And all of those things meet with God's repeated promises to send one. And so in one way or another, all of the Old Testament is setting the stage in preparation for Jesus. But when it comes to the, the death and resurrection of the Messiah specifically, I think there are a number of places that Jesus probably covered, among others. Right, so I think of, of Genesis chapter 3, as the Lord promises that the seed of the woman will one day crush the head of the serpent. He nevertheless says that the, the serpent will strike the heel of the seed of the woman. Right? In other words, the, the Messiah is not going to come out of battle unscathed. We've studied Isaiah 53 before, and we, and we saw that the suffering servant who is killed for the sin of his people, nevertheless is portrayed at the end of the passage as being alive and making intercession for the people that he saves. How does that happen without resurrection? We have repeated promises in the Psalms that God will not abandon his people to death. We have the sign of Jonah delivered from the belly of the fish on the third day. Isaac being delivered from, from being sacrificed on the third day. Hosea's promise that God will revive his people on the third day and much, much more. And so the point is that the entire Old Testament was designed to lead up to Jesus. And really, I think this is the reason why these disciples have been prevented from recognizing who Jesus is. They need to understand this. Right? You see, Jesus' point seems to be that they should not have to see him in order to understand that he truly has risen. Because the scriptures from Genesis through Malachi have already indicated that that is what would happen. All right, as they go forward, their ministry is going to be based on the scriptures. And so this conviction needs to go ahead and be cemented in their minds and hearts. Right, there, there are going to be times in life where we are confused, times when we are anxious or angry or any number of, of other situations. There are going to be seasons where we can't see what God is doing. And in those seasons, we have to remember that no matter what, we can always trust that God's word will hold true. Right, the disciples need to see in the scriptures, what has always been there. And so Jesus enables them to do so here. And so without a doubt, Jesus has just taught was the most amazing Bible study in the history of the world. And we'll see what happens next as we pick up beginning in verse 28. It says, So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us. For it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. 
So he went in to stay with them. While, when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were gathered together with them, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. So picking up in verse 28, the group finally arrives in Emmaus. And interestingly, Jesus pretends like he's going to keep going. Well, it's been good talking to you guys. Hope you have a nice day. But this conversation has been fascinating. And, and these disciples desperately want to continue talking to this strange man who has such unique spiritual perspective and insight. So they beg him to stay with them for the night. And they even add that, that it's getting to be dark and, and the day is over, implying that, that travel is going to become more dangerous after dark. And so he should just stay with them. And so Jesus agrees and goes with them. But then in verse 30, as they all sit down to eat, Jesus breaches uh, etiquette, and, and he assumes the place of the host. He takes the bread and blesses it, breaks it, and gives it to each of the disciples. And in that moment, their eyes are opened, and they recognize him for who he is. But before they have a chance to say or do anything, just as quickly as he appeared to them on the road... Jesus is gone. And now it all makes sense. The, the disciples look at each other and say, of course. They talk about how their hearts had burned within them as they spoke with Jesus on the road. Right? Nobody ever talked like Jesus did. And, and as, as they listened to this strange man on the road, their hearts had recognized his voice even when their eyes couldn't see that it was him. Now, it's nighttime at this point, as they indicated earlier. Travel, travel would be uh, more difficult and even dangerous at this point. But nothing is going to stop these disciples from making the seven-mile trip back to Jerusalem to find the apostles and the rest of the disciples and to tell them what they've just experienced. Of course, given the time, uh, we would probably expect everyone else to be asleep by this point in time. But amazingly, they go inside to find all the apostles gathered together with the other disciples, and everyone is wide awake and buzzing because the Lord has appeared to Simon also, Simon referring to Peter. And so now these two disciples are, at, are able to add their own experience to the story of the women and also Peter's encounter, and, and there begins to be a growing consensus among the disciples that Jesus is in fact risen. These people who only hours ago were fully convinced that Jesus was dead are now becoming convinced that he is alive, which sets us up to finish the story when we come back again next week. And so in our passage this morning, Jesus' resurrection is confirmed twice as he explains how his death and resurrection are at the very center of what God has been doing to save his people from their sin across the span of human history. He reveals that the whole Bible is about him. And as much as Jesus' first disciples need to understand and embrace this, we need to understand it just as much. The whole Bible is about Jesus. Now, I hope 
that this particular uh, conviction marks my teaching and preaching enough that you're not surprised to hear me say that. Uh, But it's always good for us to be reminded that the whole Bible is about Jesus. Everything from Genesis chapter 1 to Revelation 23 is about him. Now, obviously, that's not to say that every part of the Bible speaks specifically about Jesus, but it is, in fact, about him. Everything in the Old Testament leads up to him, and everything in the New Testament flows out from him. As we reflect on this truth for our lives today, we, we need to realize this has massive implications for the way that we approach and study the Bible. Right? There, there is a right way and a number of wrong ways for us to read the Bible. We can study the Bible in such a way that we get the, the full amount of what God intends for us to get out of it, or we can in, in read it and study it in ways that will fall short in that regard. And so as we close, I want to warn us against three ways of misreading the Bible as we seek to see Jesus in all of Scripture. And so first of all, we will read the Bible incorrectly when we approach it like it's about us. The the Bible is not about us. It is for us. It's been written to us, but it is not about us. And this is super important because by nature, as sinful humans, and I think perhaps especially as modern American sinful humans, we tend to make everything about us. But but the danger is that if we approach the Bible like that, then then we end up trying to figure out how to face the Goliaths in our lives, and and we try to take Daniel's fast as a health and exercise plan, and and that's just not at all what God intends for us to get from the Bible. Or, Or our individual stories have to fit into God's bigger story, not the other way around. Or at another extreme, the the prosperity gospel loves to make it all about us. God's just sitting up in heaven looking for ways to bless us if we can muster up enough faith. And so we end up going to the Bible looking for ways to get all the things that we want so that we can be healthy and wealthy. But eventually, no matter how much faith we have, our bodies break down and die. And in the meantime, the only people who seem to be getting rich off the prosperity gospel are the people who ask you to give them your money as an act of faith. Folks, the prosperity gospel is bankrupt, and one of the many reasons why that is true is because the Bible is not about you and your glory. It's about Jesus and his glory. The Bible is not about us. Secondly, we will read the Bible incorrectly if we don't remember that it is, in fact, one big story. Probably most of us, maybe even all of us here, grew up learning individual Bible stories, like Noah's Ark or Joshua and the Battle of Jericho. But they were usually isolated and disconnected from one another, and they were just used to, to teach general truths about good behavior and morality, like how can we be honest like Joseph, or how can we be brave like Elijah. Right, but in this passage, Jesus works his way through the entire Old Testament, showing how it all points forward to him. Right? And he, he demonstrates that it's all about him. And so we have to understand, this means that you can be a Bible trivia champion and have all kinds of individual facts about the Bible and yet still not understand what it's really all about. The Bible is one big story with Jesus at the center. Every individual story is connected to him in some form or fashion. 
If we fail to understand that, then however much we may learn about the Bible, we'll still be missing out on its main message and its greatest significance for our lives. And then finally, we will read the Bible incorrectly if we read it like it's a rule book. Some of those common questions and objections that people raise about the Bible or or about Christianity in general is when they point to to certain aspects of the Old Testament, like like food requirements or, or ceremonial laws that Christians don't follow. And then they make the claim that Christians are hypocritical because they pick and choose which parts of the Bible they want to follow, and then they judge other people who don't use their same standard. But again, we have to understand that that the Bible is not a rule book that lays flat with every part being equal to every other part. The Bible is a story. It has a plot with a trajectory that's going somewhere. It's going to Jesus. And as it gets there, over time, as that plot develops, certain elements of the story remain relevant, and other elements of the story do not. Right? Because Jesus changes everything. And so if we fail to recognize that the Bible is one story about Jesus, then we'll fall into any number of theological potholes in the process of trying to understand and apply the Bible to our lives. So if you were in our, our very first discipleship class a couple weeks or years ago, uh, you may remember our ever-growing one-sentence summary about what the Bible is. And so just to borrow from that, not the complete thing that we ended with, But we need to understand that the Bible is a collection of 66 books divided into two testaments written inerrantly by divinely inspired human authors and which use a variety of literary genres to tell the one story of how God is saving his people from sin through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And as his people, we are called to believe and obey this Christ-centered revelation from God. And so this morning, may we recognize the scriptures for what they are and seek to make them the standard for our lives as individuals and as a church in every way. Let's pray together.